Hello, and welcome to the Complete in Christ podcast, where we endeavor to fit the pieces of our lives together according to the Word of God. My name is Charles Wright, and in today's episode, we're beginning a study in the book of Colossians, asking the question, is Christ enough? So let's get to it. I'm excited to be starting this study in the book of Colossians really for two reasons. Uh, First, I think that the subject matter of Colossians is very applicable to where um, the modern day church, especially uh, the church, uh, the Western church here in America, kind of finds itself kind of in this crosswinds of a lot of different cultures um, and the temptations that come from that. And we'll dive into that a little bit deeper, obviously, through uh, the rest of the study. But then also, um, I'm excited to be in Colossians because it's from Colossians, specifically uh, chapter 1, verse 28, where the title of this podcast uh, really uh, was born, uh, where Paul says, we proclaim him, meaning Jesus Christ, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. Uh, and so I'm excited right, to, to really walk through this letter from Paul to the Colossian church and pray that um, we will be challenged, we will be convicted, uh, and we will also be encouraged. So uh, what I like to often do when I start uh, teaching and or preaching is always provide some contextual background, because I think that is so helpful to really try to help us move through and really put our uh, minds in the same place as much as possible that uh, the original hearers, original readers of the letter would have been in. Uh, what were their concerns? What uh, were uh, the issues going on that kind of sets, again, the context and the background for what it is that Paul is writing to them uh, in this letter? And so uh, bear with me as we go through a little bit of uh, of history, a little bit of geography, not, not too much to glaze over, but just enough, I think, to um, really give us uh, a good foundation to try to uh, dig into Paul's letter. And so uh, the first thing I think is good for us to think about is that Colossus it was uh, located uh, about 12 miles from Laodicea, and it's about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Right? So these are some familiar biblical cities and names, and it lay in the southern part of ancient Phrygia, which is um, present-day Turkey. And it had become uh, the adopted home of kind of... Um, Eastern or Oriental mysticism. Now, Colossus was on a main, main trade route as well. And as such, it drew many different folks. It drew Jews, it drew Phrygians, it drew Greeks to the city. And this mixture of backgrounds really made Colossus an interesting cultural center where the latest kind of ideas and doctrines from the East were being discussed and were being considered and debated. And, um, and caught in kind of this crosswinds, as we mentioned earlier before, was this church of believers in Coloss. And as we continue through this study, what will become clear to us, I hope, I think, is that the Colossians had some concerns, they had some fears for their everyday lives, and they had begun to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They felt like uh, to get through uh, what they were dealing with, uh, they needed something extra. They wanted more. The gospel of Christ wasn't enough for them. And they believed in Christ and they believed in the gospel, but they still found themselves looking for more, searching for more. And kind of caught in this cultural melting pot 
all of these uh, different influences, these different ideas, these uh, different cultures, uh, they began kind of borrowing from the ideas and from the doctrines of the surrounding cultures. They dibbled and they dabbled around in uh, some Jewish philosophy in some Greco-Roman idolatry. Uh, <clears throat> but before we, you know, get too um, judgmental or come down too hard on the Colossians, as I stated earlier, I, I think a lot of Christians today, we do the exact same thing. Um, specifically, the moment that life kind of throws us a curveball, right? Uh, the instant things aren't kind of going how we want them to go, uh, the late nights when worry, doubt, and fear have us tossing and turning, when our prayers don't seem to be making it to the throne room of heaven, when our devotions uh, to our daily devotion doesn't seem to be making a difference, uh, we all find ourselves kind of right in line with the Colossian church, uh, taking a pinch of pagan practice, maybe a dash of some demonic doctrine, a smidgen of secularism, and adding that to our relationship with Christ. Uh, and then we'll whip in some worldliness, we'll fold in some philosophy and, and pepper it with uh, some pop culture, all because in our eyes, the gospel of Christ and by extension, Christ himself uh, is not enough to meet all of the needs that we have at any given moment of our lives. Uh, and so uh, for all of those that are listening, um, I, I believe that what was true for those Colossian believers uh, over uh, you know, 1,960 years ago or so, uh, is just as true for believers today. And so what I want us to do is really just kind of walk through the verses. Uh, this is going to be kind of a verse by verse, um, maybe some sections of verses kind of taken together as a whole and, and main points kind of pulled out of that. But the, the hope is, is that uh, we would be encouraged um, and and also convinced and, and reminded uh, in other places of the what I'm framing and, and, and kind of coining the phrase, the enoughness of Christ, how Christ is enough for all of our uh, challenges that we meet in our lives from day to day. So let's go ahead and, and just kind of walk through this. If we looking at, at verses three through five. Paul says, we always thank God, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Um, Paul does a couple of important things here in verse three. Uh, <clears throat> he lets us know that the Colossians are regularly in his prayers, conveying very early the supremacy of Christ in a couple of ways. In describing God as the father of Jesus, Paul is highlighting the link that exists between God and Jesus. He's reiterating that Jesus is the son of God. Secondly, Paul calls Jesus Lord in the Greek kurios. It's a term used for Yahweh in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And in the pagan world, this word was used for their idol gods. And Paul kind of reaches into the cultures that were present in the ancient church to communicate that Jesus is the Lord. And by linking and equating, Paul reiterates the deity of Jesus Christ by grabbing that word from their culture Pairing it with that word's use, even in the translation of the original Hebrew of the Old Testament and applying it now to Jesus Christ, he's elevating Jesus Christ 
in both worlds, basically. If you're coming from a Jewish background perspective, he's pointing out that Jesus is Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you're coming from a pagan place, uh, he's elevating uh, Christ to um, to a to a level of of kind of commonality and understanding that they would have in terms of how they use that term to uh, address and to describe the uh, many gods that they were worshiping out of kind of their pagan backgrounds. But then lastly, and, and I think extremely important, the Colossians are believers. News of their faith in Jesus Christ, Paul said, had reached his ears. And this faith was evidenced by not them speaking in tongues and not them performing miracles, but it was evidenced in the love that they had for one another because of the hope and the promise of new life in Jesus Christ. And this is important, I think, for us to keep in mind, because what we see in this letter to the Colossians and what we see in a lot of the New Testament letters and epistles in general that Paul writes to these different bodies of believers is a distinction between concerns that are regarding their salvation versus concerns that are regarding their sanctification. And I think that's important for us to hang on to. It's to to keep in mind that at one level, uh, we definitely need to be concerned with whether or not uh, our salvation is secure. Uh, we need to be concerned with whether or not Jesus knows us, uh, not just do we know him, but does he know us, as indicated in Matthew 7, 21 through 23? Uh, is he connected to our lives? Are our names written in the Lamb's book of life? Uh, but then uh, we cannot um, assume or forget that even after the moment of salvation, then there is a sanctification process that's happening uh, where we are being made to look more like Jesus Christ. And so where the old stuff in our life is being chipped away and, and the new things of Christ are being added to our lives, where our hearts are being reshaped uh, and, and remade, where our desires are being um, changed as well. In a lot of the letters that Paul writes, he, he affirms and he um, stresses that, hey, look, you may be having some struggles in your sanctification, um, but but I still see you as saints, right? I still see you as, as, as a part of the body of believers, not just because you said you were saved, but because, like he said, news of how they are operating, news of how they are treating one another, news of how they are living in community with one another is reaching his ears. He's hearing about the love that they had one for another uh, based on the hope that they had in Jesus Christ. So Paul says to this church in Coloss, look, every time I pray, I give thanks to God um, you, the, the, the father, the one, uh, the father of the one and only Lord Jesus Christ, because, uh, we've heard about your faith in Jesus and how you are loving one another in the hope of, and in anticipation of the new life that is to come. That by the way, right, is, is breaking into the here and now through you. This, this new life to come, this new kingdom life is actually invading everyday life by how you guys are living within community with one another, expressing the love of Christ uh, to family, to friends, extending that on to even those uh, who may would consider themselves to be your enemies and, and, and being manifest 
and how you are loving one another and living with one another in love. But where did they get this hope? Where did this, this hope and this anticipation of this new life to come, where did that come from for them? That, that, that's causing them to live their current lives differently. Well, I think we'll see, right? If we kind of look at the rest of verses five through verse eight, Paul goes on to say of this, right? This hope you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So what Paul is saying is, is that The Colossians have this hope and they have this anticipation of new life to come. And the source of this hope is the word of truth, the gospel. And and this new life that, that they are living is a byproduct of this gospel. And the gospel isn't just bearing fruit and increasing there in Colossus, but it's, it's happening all over the world. It's happening uh, everywhere. This gospel, this word of truth is changing lives all over. And I think there's an important uh, question that the text begs us, even as we read this letter from Paul to the Colossian church, it, it begs us to ask ourselves, has the gospel changed our lives? Is the gospel producing fruit in our lives in an increasing ongoing manner. So much so that those looking on the outside in would say there is something else driving you. There is some other hope and and some other anticipation that you have that's causing you to live differently than the way the rest of the world lives. Oh, Look, I'm not saying that we don't have our ebbs and flows. I'm not saying that we don't have moments of being sad and we don't have moments of, of being frustrated and, 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 uh, and sometimes even concerned or scared. But what we have though is something that centers us back up that even as we kind of maybe bank from side to side and, and hit some of those emotional, um, uh, guardrails, right? That, that we have something that, that brings us back center. We have a hope and we have an anticipation that is born out of our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ that allows us to continue to move in a way that represents um, a changed life because of the power of Jesus Christ. Now, upon hearing this, right, we might conclude uh, that this gospel is amazing, right? If it's able to do all of that, then Goodness, right? Sign me up. Where do I get some of that kind of a gospel? But but think about it. I, I would wager to say that for most of us, this description of the reality of the gospel experience that Paul says is happening in this Colossian church probably sounds a bit foreign to us, maybe even unfamiliar. And I believe that's because most Christians, most of us have what I like to call kind of a keyhole view of the gospel. You know how it is, right? When you when you look through a keyhole, you can see some things in the room, but you can't see everything in the room. And in the same way, when it comes to the gospel, we tend to only see kind of Jesus, sin, the cross, forgiveness, and resurrection, uh, kind of a, an Easter view of the gospel. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, These are important elements of the gospel. Uh, They are key critical elements of the gospel. But 
these do not comprise the totality of the gospel. And the problem with viewing the gospel only in terms of Jesus's death on the cross for my sins is that it creates a self-centered and narrow Christianity. See, what we call the gospel in Greek is the word euangelion, meaning the good news. This term in the Old Testament is associated with announcements that pertain to kings and to kingdoms and to battles. And the image, I believe, that's kind of being painted in our minds is, is the image of a messenger returning from the scene of a battle and giving an update to the people regarding how their king, how their side is, is doing, is faring in battle. Isaiah 52 and 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so what we see kind of in context, euangelion, what we call gospel, is good news about kingship. So it follows that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news about the kingship of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of the kingdom of God, overturning the kingdom of darkness that has ruled and has reigned through sin and through death since the fall. And it is the good news that Jesus is the king of kings who has taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. It is the good news that Jesus' path to his throne, it passes through the cross and was validated in his resurrection. It is the good news that he has been given all power and authority by God the Father and is setting all things back in order. And those who believe in this good news, who are excited at this good news, and who align themselves with this king, they become citizens in his kingdom and get to share in his victory over sin and death. And so the gospel isn't just about us affirming some historical facts about the historical Jesus that happened on a hill called Calvary. It's not even just about us affirming some supernatural facts about the supernatural Jesus and an empty tomb, but it comes down to this. How do we respond to the kingship of Jesus? Do we bow the knee? Do we pledge our loyalty and allegiance to him? Or do we stand defiantly accepting his salvation, but rejecting his sovereignty? And Paul says that a person that has heard and has believed the word of the truth of the gospel, the good news of the kingship of Jesus Christ will be marked by a changed life. Paul goes on to acknowledge Epaphras, a fellow soldier on the missionary field with Paul, as the one who had introduced the Colossians to this life-changing good news. <laughs> and I think even though this seems like a little small um, detail that Paul throws in here, this uh, effective uh, shout out to Epaphras, I think it begs a question as well of us. And that is, is there anyone now in the family of God? Is there anyone whose name has been added to the Lamb's book of life who would point to you as their Epaphras? Is there anyone that you can point to whose life has been changed because they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from you? 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Complete in Christ podcast. Again, my name is Charles Wright, and until next time, be blessed.